Support for WERU comes from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. The time's 4 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, September 26, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Today we bring you an hour of Maine storytellers recorded at the Folk Arts Area at the Common Ground Fair last weekend by Matt Murphy. Anu Dudley, who in her other life hosts Earthwise here on WERU, was the organizer and the first storyteller. Things got off with a bit of background noise at the beginning because of the crowd at the fair, but the sound quality does improve. This is a new Dudley. I've named this event kitchen, telling, kitchen Table Storytelling because I wanted to reflect the kinds of stories that we tell each other around the kitchen table. Okay, This isn't um, big time entertainment stage. This is just people telling the stories from their ordinary lives. Um, so, I'll get started. My name is Anu Dudley, and I coordinate the whole folk arts area. Uh, and I, I, I like to tell stories um, about some of the unusual things that happen in my life. So, I'm going to start out with a story that's called The Night of Horror on Cuxabexis. Yeah. <clears throat> so... I'm going to start out by talking about a summer day, uh, and it was—it felt just like any other ordinary summer day. Um, you know, it was kind of hot and humid, and there was there was really nothing about the day that would indicate to me the kind of horror that I was going to face later on that evening. It was just an innocent summer day. Of course, when I look back on it in hindsight, I think I can see some of the signs. You know, it was so hot and humid at 5.30 in the morning when I was up that it, was, it almost felt kind of unnatural. Uh, and, and when I look back on it, you know, my imagination goes wild and I think, well, it felt like some great panting beast that was sort of lurking in the shadows, you know, being sort of menacing, looking for the right opportunity to leap out. But that's all in hindsight. I also, when I do think about it, I also think, you know, when I see that scene, that early morning scene where it's kind of cloud, you know, uh, misty around the edges of the trees, I can hear that soundtrack that you hear from one of those kind of ominous, you know, adventure stories, you know, that low tone that tells you that even though the scene is sunny, you know, there's something dreadful going to happen. So when I look back on it, that's what I hear. But, you know, when this, when this morning was happening, we were getting ready to go on another canoe trip. And we were really excited. And we were almost all packed. We were planning to go up on Chizuncook Lake. Now, that's way, 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 way up in the northern part of the state. Uh, it's, if you're familiar with the Gazetteer, it's on map 49. So it's way up there. And the, yeah, you know well, uh, it's a lovely lake. Uh, uh, up on Chizuncook, and the state of Maine had recently uh, set aside Jiro Island on Chizuncook uh, as a Maine, um, 
what is it, Maine Public Reserve Land, I think it was called, and they'd set up some campsites on it. So we were looking forward to going up there and checking it out. Um, and, but we knew it was going to be a really long trip. But, so that's why we wanted to get started really early. So we were all set to go, and then suddenly the phone rang, and it was my work, and my editor was saying, you know, we need to have that revised manuscript before you leave. I need it now. So I thought, oh my God, I've got to go into town. I've got to copy it, and I've got to mail it. And of course, I'm dating myself, right? Because this was at a time when people still did things with hard copy and postage. Okay? I'm sure some of you can uh, relate to that. So several hours later, I got back, and it was almost noon at this point. You know, and we had like at least three hours to drive north and another hour along a, a, an unfamiliar, unpaved road. Um, so it was going to be a very long trip. So we said, you know, should we just like stay here and just, you know, leave really early the next morning? I mean, that's a smart thing to do. But then we thought, no, what if, wouldn't it be nice to just wake up on Shazun Cook the next morning? So let's just go ahead and do it. You know, in retrospect, I mean, if we had known the horror that awaited us, that we would have just stayed the night at our own place and gotten up really early the next morning and just, and just gone off and everything would have been fine. Of course, then I wouldn't have had a story to tell. So we headed off and indeed it was a very long trip and it was a very hot trip. It did not get cooler when we got up there. So we're going along that paved road and we're, we're saying goodbye to the last restaurant and then we're saying goodbye to the last gas station and turning off on that unpaved tote road, which would get us to the lake. And ordinarily, you know, we feel really excited about that because then we're, we're finally out there in the wilderness, right? There's nobody around and we're out, we're ready for our adventure. But this started to feel kind of unsettling because the road that we turned off on was uh, heavily cut over. It was a tote road, and you know, a logging company had been there recently and had really um, taken down a lot of trees. You know, that chainsaw activity must have been really um, brutal while it was going on. And so, you know, rather than feeling kind of happy, the scene looked sort of desolate, you know, and disturbing. And so I started to feel a little bit uncomfortable, and I I was looking around, and I mean, I have to say that I, I am not a fan of horror movies, okay? I don't watch horror movies. But I, I've seen some clips of this movie that was called, you know, Freddy and the, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know? And I, and, I st and I looked around, and I thought, oh, my God, it looks like Freddy's here. What if he's still out there? You know? So I said, okay, just stay in the truck and keep driving. So we, we, we drove, and... The road started to get rougher, worse, you know, it was like, this doesn't look like a very well-traveled road. So we finally pulled over by a stream, and you know, the sun was going to set shortly. So we knew we didn't have an awful lot more time. So we pull over by this stream, we pull out the main gazetteer, and after a while we finally figured out where we were. We were on the Cuxabexis stream. And you know, we thought, well, where's that? I mean, we've never heard of that, and this isn't where we intended to be. And so, you know, we thought, well, maybe we should just turn around and just drive back on this road and get back onto the paved road and then drive another 25 miles till we come to that motel that we saw and just spend the night, get up in the morning, have a shower, and then take off. 
I don't know why my mind started going in this direction, but then I, I remembered this, this movie, remember the movie Psycho? You know, with the shower scene in the Bates Motel? You know, and I thought, uh, I don't know, they look kind of sketchy, and, I, and I, maybe I just like to take my chances in the woods. So we decided to just stay there uh, in the woods. So we, you know, we pulled off of the tote road, which was completely unnecessary because there was no traffic. And then I started looking at the site, and I thought, this looks really isolated, you know? I mean, this looks like a scene out of a, a Stephen King movie. You know, I could, I could hear that ominous, you know, undertone, that music, you know? And then I thought, oh no, what if Freddy's still out there? You know, I mean, this is starting to look really uncomfortable. But we had made the decision that we were going to stay. And so we got out of the truck and started looking around to see, well, where are we going to put our tent? But unfortunately, there's, and remember, it's getting dark now, and we couldn't really see a good place to pitch a tent. You want a place that's, you know, fairly level and doesn't have a lot of rocks and bumps underneath it. And we just couldn't find a place. So then we said, well... I guess we're just going to have to sleep in the truck. And that wasn't too bad because there's a canoe over the top. You know, I mean, it wasn't going to rain. And so we unloaded our gear and we put down the sleeping pad and the sleeping bags. And we, we thought, well, okay, we're just going to go to bed now. And we, uh, but, but, you know, it was so hot. And we had down sleeping bags. And so, you know, you just... Uh, you're not going to want to be inside the sleeping bag. So we just said, okay, we're going to lay down on top of our sleeping bags, and that's where we're going to sleep. So we just uh, started to get ready. And then I, I saw, I, I remembered this scene from, from uh, other horror movies, you know, where, where they hear a sound in the basement. And then, then the guy goes over and he opens the door to the basement. You know, the door always goes... You know, and then, and then he starts to go down, and then everybody in the audience in the movie theater says, don't go down in the basement! You know, and of course, he, he has to go down in the basement, because if he didn't, then there wouldn't be any story, right? So, as we're lying down here in the truck, you know, I'm hearing this voice saying, don't go to sleep in the back of the truck! But we had to, because if we hadn't, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a story to tell. So we started to lay down and just, you know, compose ourselves for sleep. And then it happened. We had unwittingly parked right in the middle of a noceum convention. And the meeting was over, and they were ready to partay. So here they come with their, you know, little Shriner hats with the tassel on the side, you know, and the noisemakers and the little beep beep and the little blow, the little horns, you know. And I heard one of them say, come on, Nom, they're open in the bar. And they rushed in and they started drinking us. They started drinking us. And it was a horror show, you know, because you can't see them. So how do you protect yourself from them? So my partner decided that he was just going to go sleep in the truck with the windows rolled up, you know. But, but I was thinking, well, I don't want to, I mean, that would be like being in a tomb, right? And then those, all, those vicious noceums that have their little faces pressed up against the window, you know, trying to get at you all night long. So for some reason, I thought it would be better to sleep outside. But then I started getting visions of me being the, the main character in a vampire movie, you know, and Boris Karloff leaning over saying, let me bite your neck, 
or any other exposed body part. And then, I mean, I've never seen these movies, but these are famous clips, you know? There's Hannibal Lecter with his mouth full of flesh, you know? And he's saying, this would be, meal would be really improved with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. So I, I thought, I, I thought I'm being a real feast here. So uh, my mind just went from bad to worse here. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, I'm gonna start looking like one of those zombies, you know, that sort of lurches around, you know, and his, his face is falling off in shreds. You know, and then I, I remembered this scene from a, from a mummy movie and the mummies lurching around and I thought, oh, I have a mummy bag. It's a down bag, but it's a mummy bag. So I climbed into it, I zipped it up, and you know they have a hood? Zipped right up here, and I just took the, the little, um, you know, the little tighteners, and I tightened it right down to about here, okay? So just my nose was sticking out so I could breathe. And that did keep the bugs away, but it was hot as hell. And then my mind started to race again, and I was, I was remembering that story by Edgar Allan Poe, remember the pit and the pendulum? And here he is, you know, he's in that final scene where the, the red hot walls are squeezing in on him, you know, and then the more the walls squeeze together, the lower the pendulum goes. So he either has to choose to be sliced and fried, or he's gonna jump into that pit and then suffer the, the, uh, those unknown horrors that await him there. And then I fell asleep. So the next morning I, I woke up and it was a beautiful morning. I mean, it was cool and there were still some birds singing and there was a little breeze and you know, I could look off the edge of the truck and I could see that there was a perfect place to set a truck, uh, set a tent over there. I mean, it wasn't an ominous looking place at all. It looked really nice. And I could smell the coffee. My partner was making coffee on the, on the, uh, on the, the tailgate. So I got out of my sleeping bag and started to get out of the truck, and he took one look at me and he started to laugh. And I said, well, what the heck are you laughing about? You know, I mean, I survived. So he said, why don't you take a look in the mirror? So I went over to the side of the truck and looked in the, the side view mirror, and there, my entire nose, everything here, like every, right here, everything, everything that was sticking out last night was bright red. I looked like Rudolph, because that's where the noceums had feasted on me all night long. I was really glad that, that we weren't really gonna see anybody for several days so all that swelling could go down. Uh, but that, I call that my red badge of horror. Thank you. So our next storyteller is Jenny Tibbetts. Would you like to say a few words about yourself before you start telling? Oh, maybe. I'm a little bit taller. All right. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm Jenny Tibbetts, and I produce a podcast called Lunar Date Book, which I invite you to listen to. I write short fiction about Waldo County, and I tell stories like the one you're going to hear now. So it was Good Friday, year 2000. I was at the Colosseum in Rome. Pope Saint uh, John Paul II was inside, circling the perimeter of the arena floor, performing the Stations of the Cross. 
as has been papal tradition since 1749 when Pope Benedict XIV declared that Christians had been martyred there. I was outside the Colosseum in the piazza with my posse of fellow Temple University Rome students and uh, thousands of Catholic devotees listening to the Pope's prayers on the loudspeakers. The night was electric. Uh, three of my four grandparents were raised Catholic. I was not. So while I'd been to several Catholic masses, this Good Friday stuff was completely foreign to me. So I'll, it, it goes something like this. This is, this is what it was like. The Pope would say his prayer. Christus omnibus Latinus. And then the translation came over the loudspeaker. Christ falls under the cross for the first time. I was like, what? What are you talking about? I thought I must have misheard, but then the next station comes along. Christus omnibus Latinus. And then the translation. Christ meets Veronica. Now, I have since learned that the stations of the cross are meant to be markers on Christ's journey from his trial to his crucifixion, where you stand with Christ in his suffering and meditate on his experience. But at the time, I just thought it was ridiculous minutia, like sort of like ancient Facebook posts, like, here's Christ. Oh, I'm carrying the cross. It's so heavy. And oh, here I am with my pal Veronica. Um, so my friends and I started making up our own stations of the cross. Christ orders a panini from Casa Ricardo's. And Christ gets a mama tattoo on his arm. And it was completely inappropriate. We were dying laughing. We were definitely going you know where. And we didn't care because we were having so much fun. So it's at this point that my friend Byron says to me, Byron, this is Byron Kukaras, my Greek friend from North Philly. His family owns a, uh, a pizzeria, and uh, he's, he looks exactly like the Count. He has a big round head, little round glasses, short mustache. He says, Jenny, we're doing it. I say, we're doing it? He says, we're doing it. I say, okay. So, what are we doing? Well, my same group of friends and I had been to the Colosseum several weeks prior to this. Uh, most of you can probably conjure an image of the Colosseum in your mind's eye. This is the Flavius Amphitheater, named after the, uh, the three emperors of the Flavian dynasty who oversaw its construction from 72 to 80 AD. Um, it is three levels of travertine stone. Um, the entire Roman population could go and watch gladiators battle here. And they could all... It was 50... 50,000 people, 50,000 people. They all could go and watch. And they all did. And they could all exit in less than 10 minutes because the perimeter of the Colosseum is made up of these arch entranceways. Um, there's 80 of them around the perimeter. And you could go in, go into the arcade, and take stairwells up to the seating. At present, these entryways are barred. But we had heard, and this was truly the stuff of urban legend. I don't remember where we heard it from or who we heard it from. But we had heard that willing individuals could pass through these bars. So we thought we should probably go give that a try. So one beautiful Roman moonlit evening, we went to the Colosseum. And we had been told to try the fourth archway to the left of the main entrance. So we go up to the bars. 
and they're set about six inches apart on center. There's about four inches of real space between them. And we could pass through. It wasn't pretty. It was sort of like a breached berth. You know, you put a foot in and you get your arm and but you finally popped through. And we were in. And it was awesome. We went through the arcade over to the ramp and up to the arena floor where the gladiators used to battle. There's no arena floor there now. What's left are, um, you can see these subterranean passageways, where they, uh, which they used to use for um, special effects. They would open up a trap door and deliver a lion out into the middle of the arena. Meanwhile, down below, a hundred slaves would be operating these elaborate pulley systems. Um, so all historical sites should offer night visitings, because that's when the ghosts come out. The Colosseum has been overrun by cats. Like hundreds of cats live there. Um, and they lay pretty low during the day, but at night they go out and they wander. So we watched them in their shadows, and we hung out for a little while. We were quiet when we were there, and then we left. So I went to go, and we can go back down the ramp, through the arcade to the archway, and I go to pass through the bars, and I'm stuck. I try another set of bars, and I'm not going anywhere. Now, I know I had come in, so I should be able to get out. My friends are going through, no problem. I try three, four, five sets of bars, and nothing. I'll never forget this. On the other side is my friend Jacob. He looks at me, and he says, Jenny, you need to maneuver. And that word, maneuver, entered my third eye and dove through the core of my being. And it's not often that you think of yourself as being 80% water or that the steel bars in front of you are really just clusters of molecules humming together. But I did then, and I passed through those bars like water through a floodgate. So, this brings us back to Good Friday. My friend Byron and I are going to break into the Colosseum and go watch the Pope perform the Stations of the Cross. I would be lying if I said that we weren't super shady when we did this. We like went up to the, we did the whole like go up to the bars and try to act all casual and say, hey, how's it going? Yeah, we're just, don't mind us. And then, Ugh! but we got in. Now what? Well, Byron takes my hand and we start walking. And we are so cool. We are just like two ancient Roman lovers going to watch some gladiators get their heads chopped off. And we are walking, and we turn to go up the ramp to the arena floor, and there's a sea of cardinal hats, red cardinal hats in front of us. The entire Vatican was there. We had no idea. But we're cool. We're walking. There's also six cabanieri, six policemen who are, who are there to protect the Pope. But they're not watching us. They're watching the Pope. This is like Christmas for them. They're already thinking about the letters they're going to write to their mothers and grandmothers, you know, afterwards. Mom, I got to see the Pope do the Stations of the Cross. So we go past the first set of cops, and we go past the second set of cops. One of them looks over and does one of these. Hey, how's it going? Double take, and we're caught. So now we got six police officers surrounding us, shuffling us back down the ramp. Everything's going on in Italian. Uh, one cop comes to the lead and he says, who are you and how did you get here? Well, Byron and I had not discussed this inevitable moment before we came in. But I figure he's my rough and tumble friend. He's been in a lot of tight spots. He'll talk us out. So I look at Byron. Byron looks at the cop. 
And he goes, bolt. You might not think you know what bolt means, but you know what bolt means. The cop asks this question again. Byron looks at the cop again. He shrugs and he goes, bolt. By now, it's apparent that this is the entirety of Byron's escape plan. And it's also clear that the cop does not want to have to ask his questions again. So I save us all by coming forward and saying, wait, 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 wait. We're just two university students having a good time. We came in through the bars over there. The cops are shaking their heads. I say, no, it's true. I'll show you. So now I'm leading a parade back through the arcade over to the archway, and I point to the bars. The cops look, and they say, no way. They're looking at those four inches. They're looking at us. The lead cop says, show me. Maneuver. You never saw two people go through a set of bars quicker in your entire life. We get on the outside. The cops start applauding. Wow, nicely done. I didn't think you could do it. I take a little bow. Within 24 seconds, there are two cop cars stationed outside that archway. In less than half that time, we had maneuvered back into the crowd. Thank you. If you're just joining us, these are main storytellers from the Folk Arts Center or Folk Arts area of the Common Ground Fair last weekend. Our next storyteller is Leslie Christeller. Hi, uh, thanks for coming. Um, my name is Leslie Christeller. I live in Lincolnville, and uh, this is my first time here at this stage. And I'm pretty new to this whole storytelling thing, but uh, I have a big background as a writer and an artist, so I started giving it a try this year, and I'm enjoying it. So I hope you enjoy my story. Um, I noticed over on the uh, board it said landing in Maine. Well, this is a little bit more like landing in Maine and leaving Maine and landing back in Maine. <laughs> so, uh, as many of you know, the winters in Maine are a little tough, and finding yourself closed into your cabin, you sometimes think and do some pretty crazy things. Um, so, one winter, um, snow was predicted pretty much every Tuesday or Friday or both, and sometimes on Saturdays, but really not a whole lot of time in between. So I'm preparing one night. I start seeing there was a snow forecast on a Tuesday, and it's somewhere January, February. And I start doing my not-so-routine, because I had just come to Maine that year, um, and it was one of the hardest winters we have ever had in many, many years in Maine. Um, and... So I start in this routine where I'm looking at the snow. So I decide a good idea would be go out and shovel the already snow pile to my wood pile. That was about 6 o'clock. Come back in, watch TV for a couple hours, and it's really snowing hard. Around 9 o'clock, I decide I like staying ahead of the game. So out I go. Shovel the same path out to the wood pile, but I shovel the stairs and the walkway and out to my car, which, by the way, I had parked facing out around 5 o'clock, knowing there was snow coming. So I'm doing this around 10 o'clock. The lights start flickering, and I decide that it's time for me to try out my little 
oil lamp that I bought the summer before at Rennie's. Um, and now my house smells like sweat and patchouli. Yay! And fortunately, the lights didn't go out quite yet that time. And so I go to bed around 6 a.m. The dogs start barking, and either it's the northern lights or it's the snowplow, but I think I'm betting on the snowplow about 6 a.m. waking me up with the dogs. And so I pull on my Rennie's boots over my bunny slippers and my polka dot pajamas and my parka and my hat and um, my blue rubber snow shoveling gloves, my official snow shoveling gloves. And I go out to shovel out all the snow, like concrete, that's been put in front of my car by the snowplow. And I live on a little dirt road, so there's not much space to put things. And it's about 6.29 now, and in about 6.35, I see some other bright lights. Again, not the northern lights, but my neighbor's tractor with the front loader with his big shiny lights. And he starts up the tractor, and that's a sign for me to do something, and I'm not entirely sure what, but I think I'm supposed to start up my car and drive it up to the top of the road. And um, basically, he, he plows out my drive and he's making many sort of unintelligible hand signals at me in the light in the snow and I pull the car up to the top of the street which is as far as I can get and I check my mailbox which I hadn't checked for a few days and there in it is my prize information for my great departure summer trip to the rock well people don't know what the rock is I sure didn't know what it was it's called Newfoundland and it's like, take a left at Canada, take another left, take a left at Nova Scotia, oh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, take a boat, get to Newfoundland. Um, that, but that was in June, you know, that was a long way off. So I spent the majority of the January, February, March, April, and to May that winter um, going through the same routine, shoveling out the snow pile, putting on my boots, I've, by this time, it started to interpret some of the signs from my neighbor about the tractor that I was indeed supposed to get my ass out of there so he could be a good neighbor and pretty much knock over all my shit in my driveway and do the um, snowplow thing, which he loved doing. And I was grateful to him because otherwise, by the end of the winter, I would not have had any driveway left to park in. So during this time period where I'm stuck in the house on Tuesdays and Fridays and sometimes Saturdays and sometimes the power out. When the power was on, I was watching TV and surfing the internet for my trip to Newfoundland, which started at Porta Basque, went through wonderful towns like Doyle, something Corners, Badger, some other town, and another town, another town. Basically, it was only 476 kilometers that I was going to hike on the T-Railway. So, hey, that's in kilometers, so it can't be that bad in miles, right? Um, about 300 somewhere in there. Um, so I got all, every time I went up to the mailbox, I'd get a new brochure. Welcome to Newfoundland. Welcome to Nova Scotia. Here's your map. Just to give you an idea how big Newfoundland is. It's huge. And 
there's one road, one road, Route 1. Imagine that, Route 1. I think we have one of those here in Maine. Um, and I'm going to be traveling from here to here to here to here. Anyway, pretty useless. So I persuade a friend of mine to drive me all the way up to Sydney, Nova Scotia, North Sydney to be exact, and take the, um, the overnight ferry. Meanwhile, back at the ranch during the winter, I do wonderful things on the internet. I read basically what I call backpacking porn with articles, titles like, you too can hike for a week with 10.5 pounds in your backpack, uh, including food and shelter. Um, titanium or stainless steel, which is best. Um, the upshot of that was that I, among other things that came down my driveway with the FedEx truck when it wasn't packed with snow, were things like a $300 single-band tent, which is about the size of my dog's bed. When I set it up in the living room, they both looked very dubious at it, and one's, only, one's 20 pounds, the other one's 5 pounds. Neither one of them wanted to go near it. So <laughs> that was the size of my shelter that I was bringing, about the size of three of those chairs across. Um, but it only weighed two pounds. And the titanium bowl I ordered for $22 only weighed one and a half ounces, so I'm good. Uh, I've never bothered weighing myself. As you can see, I'm not exactly petite, but it was really important to only carry, you know, 20 pounds, not 22. Um, and I would spend any strange amount of money to do that. Um, on alternate Thursdays when it wasn't snowing, I went down to Rennie's and cleaned out their hiking and backpacking aisles and brought everything back and realized everything I bought was too heavy. The mosquito net head net was an ounce bigger than the one I already owned. Everything I bought was a couple ounces bigger than everything I already owned three of. Um, I even weighed things like whistles. You know, this is what you do when you are left with an electronic scale and five feet of snow outside your door by the end of the winter. Meanwhile, I'm supposed to train for this trip, but you know, hey, I've been shoveling snow all winter. I must be in good shape. So get on the boat, um, the ferry, which was very entertaining, had a lot of alcohol, a lot of alcohol constantly, people flying you with this. Seemed like a good idea to have a couple of drinks after all, it was just going overnight. Did that, got off the boat. Now there's this trail called the T-Rail Trail, which they put in the rail bed in, Nova in uh, Newfoundland that follows along all the way from Port of Basque to St. John's, which is way the hell on the other side of that big map I showed you. I was only going about halfway, so no big deal. I only had to bring half the map. Um, I could cut it in half and save another ounce. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I had all my gear, I had all my stuff, small detail, get off the boat, totally exhausted because I'd slept in a chair, which they advertise as being a lounger chair, which I paid $18 more for. I didn't sleep much. Left the boat with my backpack, my boots. I'm all geared up. And there's only three people in the entire town of Porta Basque who knows where the rail trail is. Try asking somebody in Ellsworth where the Downey's Sunrise Trail is. They won't know either, okay? I've hiked enough rail trails. Nobody knows this thing goes through their town. No clue. They just sort of see this thing and they go, what? That's something. Finally, of the three people in Porta Basque who knew where the rail trail was, 
Two of them were on it, and one of them was still sleeping. So I wandered around for about an hour in this town. And uh, I don't know if anybody's been to Newfoundland, but there's not a lot of people there, okay? There's this big, long route one. There's not a whole, whole lot of people. My plan was to hopscotch and take this one bus that goes up Route 1 every day all the way to St. John's and goes back the next day. That's how their bus public transit works. Um, so I get on the trail. The first day was wonderful. After I got blisters from hiking in my hiking boots around the town for an hour with my 22-pound backpack or whatever it was, and I get on the trail, and I run into all these wonderful people. They've got their coordinating little shorts on, their little day pack, their bandana around their neck matches their shirt. If it's purple, it's purple. They got a nice little hat on, and they all smile at me, and they say, hey, how you doing? Where are you going? What you doing with that pack? And I say, well, I'm hiking to uh, Badger. And they look at me, and I can see them doing the math in their head, in French maybe. You know, that's like... 467 kilometers from here. What the f***? <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, <laughs> you can blip that out if you need to. Um, anyways, so these are the last three or four upright, dry mammals I see in the three days of what was supposed to be my three-week trip to Newfoundland. Um, the first day, pretty good. I'm working all the kinks out. My knees are killing me. Everything's hurting because I spent the winter shoveling snow instead of conditioning for this trip. Um, in any case, I'm still positive. I get the first night I spend in a state provincial park. They have showers and all that good stuff. I'm in my little tent. Everything's wonderful. From then on, the wind picked up. It rained. The trail turned into... Gravel, I don't know if you've been on what's called a multi-use trail. Well, in many places, a multi-use trail stands for A, T, and V, okay? Those are the three uses for the trail. The gravel is about the size of hen's eggs that have been sharpened to a fast point on all sides. That's pretty much what the rail trail was. And... Um, I did see a few ATVs. I've got nothing against them. In fact, I learned to ride one a couple years ago. It's great fun, but uh, they're not really conducive to walking. There's a reason they replaced the railroad with Route 1 and a rail trail. As I came to find out in hindsight, I read all the brochures about the highest winds in North America besides Mount Washington are on this stretch of road in southern Newfoundland. I never got to the parks with the caribou. I didn't see a single living being for the three days, except at the end, which I'll say for a minute later. They took the railroads out because... In the past, the 20 miles that I was hiking past my first stop, they had to tie the trains down with cables before they came to this pass to see if they could get through the pass 
through the, it sounds higher in kilometers. I don't know. I'm just going to make something up. 150 mile kilometer per hour winds. Um, they tied trains down so they wouldn't fall over. Okay. Here I am with my 22 pound backpack and my 200 plus rest of me. Um, walking with two hiking sticks going like this along the sea for two days. I went through one village where they had the Canadian brand or equivalent of ding-dongs and ho-hos, and that was about the extent of the food they had in their little store, um, which I ate copiously because uh, it was dry in there. Um, and pretty much by the third day, I decided that there was not a way that I was going to get past that. I was very upset. I was distraught. But I stuck with it. And that's sort of what I do in life is I don't bail out. I felt like I was bailing out. I hiked up um, to the highway at its absolute windiest point. They had a sign in French and English that this was the windiest place in, in Newfoundland. Um, and they had this big uh, park, parking lot. And I hiked up there. I literally clawed my way up onto the road and hiked across the road. And there was a woman there taking, with a big, big camera, taking photographs. And there was a rainbow and a mountain and an eagle. Yay! But unfortunately, I love to think the milk of human kindness comes through in all people, but this woman did not bother to say, hey, how you doing? Where are you going? What you doing? Need a ride anywhere? You're standing there in 70 mile an hour gusts. Maybe you might need something. <laughs> she took her photographs of the eagle and the rainbow and the mountain and drove off. Uh, I have a general rule about hiking, backpacking alone that I, I really do not try to hitchhike. I do occasionally accept rides or I'll take a bus between stops. But this was a massive exception to that rule. I got my ass out there on the road, put my thumb out, and prayed. And there was about two cars every 20 minutes. Finally, a, car, a truck pulled over, and the truck had provincial parts of Newfoundland on the side. And... He took me to the next town where I went into the store, which was actually, he asked me, where are you going? And in my brain, I had all the bus stops plotted out. So I went to this little town. I got off at the general store where there's a bus stop. And once I put my backpack down, I realized my wonderful $300 two-pound tent had fallen off the back of my backpack. <laughs> People couldn't have been nicer they drove me to a bed and breakfast, which had a whirlpool <laughs> and a couch. And I stayed two days there, and I ended up taking the bus to another place in Corner Brook and having a little cultural visit, and I uh, stayed at the university, and I ended up taking the bus back to the ferry. So my 476-kilometer trip, was probably actually about 25 kilometers all told. But I did learn that 
I really um, can land someplace and stick to things. I came back and I spent most of the rest of the summer beating myself up until I started realizing I was thinking of a story for to tell that I did not abandon anything in my journey. And I hope that if anybody's on a difficult journey that they realize if they do the sensible thing, like getting off the trail <laughs> and going home, that they're probably doing the right thing. Um, the one little other tidbit, once I was up in civilization again, I listened to the local radio. It turned out that day that I was up there on that pass, the, tra the trains don't fall over anymore, but guess what happens? The tractor trailer trucks come off the ferry and they fall over. Three of them fell over that day. So that's a tractor trailer truck. You know, they're a little bigger than me. And I didn't feel so much bad about my weight then. <laughs> um, so I hope you enjoyed this story. And I am planning to go back to Newfoundland with a little more prep. And I may do it on an ATV next time. Thank you. Again, if you're just tuning in, these are storytellers from the folk arts area of the Common Ground Fair, recorded by Matt Murphy last weekend. Anu Dudley is the MC. Well, we have one more storyteller, uh, Naomi Graychase. So thanks for coming out on such a hot day to listen to storytelling. Thanks to Anu for organizing us and to Jenny and Leslie for taking the stage. I really enjoyed your stories. Uh, my name is Naomi Graychase, and I came to you today from Bucksport. This is my second time at the Common Ground Fair. The last time was not this hot. I am a yoga teacher. I spend my days and sometimes my nights teaching yoga in mid-coast and down-east Maine. I specialize in restorative therapeutic yoga, and I work mostly with adults and children who have special needs, cancer patients, women who have PTSD, first responders, the injured, the ill, and the children at Acadia Psychiatric Hospital in Bangor. When I first began teaching six years ago, I was so afraid that when I sat down for the first time in front of my students, I found that I was unable to get back up. My arms and my legs were weak and frozen by fear. And so I did the only thing that I felt I could do. I stayed seated and I guided my students with my voice. This problem of fear-induced immobility lasted for about my first 100 classes. But after 100 classes, I realized that the fear was passing more quickly, that I was able to move my limbs with less and less of a delay. And as I contemplated the experience, I realized that I had developed a sense of trust, that all of the unconscious and conscious fears that were freezing my limbs were really questions. What if I don't know what to do? What if someone needs something I can't provide? What if I make a mistake? What I had been practicing all that while, through all that hundred or so hours of classes, was answering those questions with faith with trust. Eventually, in every class, even the first one, I did begin to move my limbs. And in each class, the way I got there was by having faith at a deep and unconscious level that I could trust my knowing. That if I tuned in, the right instructions and choices and grace would fill the room. I practiced, not just downward facing dog or triangle or tree, I practiced trust so that by the time a hundred hours of teaching had come and gone, the gap between doubt and faith was so minuscule that it came and went in minutes 
and then seconds, and today, after thousands of hours of teaching, I notice that I move from fear to trust so quickly, the journey is imperceptible, instantaneous. I still consciously feel fear or dread sometimes when I am about to teach, but I have a muscle that allows me to open into the possibility that all will be well, that when I am teaching, all will always be well. I have lived a life so far that has been fraught with fear and loss and uncertainty. And so finding one space where I feel a connection to the part of me that knows all is well is perhaps the greatest gift my body, mind, and spirit could have been given in this human experience. Yoga is a place I go to feel my highest good, to be of service, to experience in my fullest self a joyful, peaceful, powerful sense of light and grace. That powerful and blessed journey from insecure and fearful to trusting and safe, it happened with a soundtrack. While I was at my yoga teacher training, I encountered for the first time the experience of yoga classes taught not in silence, but with mantras playing in the background. I loved this experience. And when I became a teacher, I too played mantras in the background. In those terrified moments when I was frozen as a beginning teacher, those mantras kept me in the flow, kept me feeling safe, kept me in touch with something bigger than myself. They helped bridge the gap between fear and knowing. They reminded me at the deepest level that all was well. And my students and I have loved the heart-opening experience of listening to peaceful mantras as we breathe, meditate, and move. While there is a robust world of yoga, music out there, I have found a handful of singers who touch my heart so deeply that I simply play them over and over and over. The same singers, the same mantras. My students love them. I love them. And these same mantras have become the soundtrack of my healing, my courage, my peace, my education, my love, my service, my well-being, my surrender. Two of the artists I listen to almost every time I teach are a married couple, Deva Premal and her husband, Dave Mitten. It is difficult to say in words how much their music has meant to me as a student, as a teacher, as a yogi, as a flawed and aching human being. A couple of years ago, my master teacher, Jillian Peransky, invited me to come to Costa Rica to assist her at an amazing yoga retreat called Blue Spirit. While we were there, David Premal and Dave Mitten were there as well. They traveled the world giving concerts and offering kirtan and kundalini meditations, and they were at Blue Spirit planning a special kirtan event that would happen later that spring. It felt like a miracle that these two human beings were in the same place as I. If you don't follow yoga music, the impact of their presence might be somewhat lost on you. So imagine, if you will, that you went to a relatively small wellness resort and discovered that Bono, or Bruce Springsteen, or John Lennon, or whoever your most magical, most influential, most powerfully artistic musical icon might be, would sit down every day at a table near you and eat his or her dinner. I didn't want to be one of those people who bothers a famous person when they're trying to eat or talk to their friends. So I just breathed into the awareness that Deva Premal and Mitten were on the premises and sometimes nearby. But then one day, 
I was standing in line at the lunch buffet, plopping a spoonful of marinated tofu on my tray, when I realized Dave Mitten was standing right behind me. I stopped breathing for a second, and I probably blushed. I froze. I was lucky I didn't drop my tray and just start gabbling. Time had frozen, and I wasn't sure how long I'd been having this little seizure of awe, but I don't think it was long enough for him to notice anything was off. Eventually, my body remembered to breathe, and I regained my composure slightly. I put another spoonful of tofu on my tray and decided to be cool and respectful and not bother this nice, amazing man who I'm sure only wanted to get his own tofu and go sit down with his people. But then somehow, my body turned itself around, and my tray of tofu and I were suddenly facing Dave Mitten. He was tall and tan and lean, and his white hair and beard were so bright he seemed to glow. He had the bluest, most extraordinarily luminescent eyes I have ever seen. Before I knew what was happening, my mouth had opened and I was speaking to this man. Hi, I said, practically bumping my tray into his belly. He smiled, and I was struck, even through my spastic panic, by his profound vibration of calm. You're Mitten, I said, quite cleverly. And he looked down at me with the warmest smile I have ever seen, and he said, yes, what is your name? Naomi, I think I said. I'm a yoga teacher, and your music, it means so much to me. I'm sorry to bother you. I just, I just wanted you to know how much you mean. And then I couldn't make words anymore. I was overcome by every single moment that his music has touched my heart and helped me journey from fear to faith. Every moment that his music has helped to calm my heart, my body, my mind. Every moment that his music has moved my students and I to tears of joy in our practice. I stood there in Costa Rica, sweating and sobbing with tears of joy and a beauty too big to express in words. I felt silly and embarrassed that I was holding up the lunch line. But all that beautiful gratitude inside me just poured out all over the place in big sloppy tears and gasps and snuffles. And do you know what Dave Mitten did? When he was faced with a sweaty, sunburnt, hysterical fan holding a tray of tofu too close to his body in the lunch line at Blue Spirit, his full, swift, and immediate action was to reach out his arms and embrace me. I don't know how he managed to do this with my tray still in my arms, but somehow he wrapped me up and he began to whisper into the crown of my head, oh, beautiful one, beautiful one, beautiful one. And for the first time in my whole life, I felt fully, completely, and truly loved for exactly who I am. I felt the most radiant acceptance and joy and complete and holy loving kindness pour through his body and into mine. I felt light and love, and I could see, I could know that all was well, not just on my yoga mat, not just when I'm teaching, but all the time, always. I am a being of light, and all is well. All manner of thing is well. Over and over, he spoke into my crown like a prayer, like a blessing, like the truest thing that had ever been said. Beautiful one, beautiful one, beautiful one. Eventually, the sobbing passed, and I softened 
into his warmth and strength and the soft textures, his blue t-shirt. He was the very physical embodiment of true unfettered kindness. I took a breath and wiped my eyes and looked up at him and we smiled at each other. I laughed a little and I said, thank you. It's just that you're so beautiful. And he smiled wide and he said, if you think I'm beautiful, wait till you see my wife. <laughs> and we laughed. And she is, by the way, extraordinarily beautiful. I looked around him with the intention of apologizing to all the hungry retreat goers who were waiting behind Dave Mitten and I. But it turned out my apology wasn't necessary. They were all smiling and crying too. I thanked him again and I took my tray to the table where my friends were waiting. And for the rest of that day and every day since, my yoga practice is not only a practice of faith that I will not fail, it is a practice of offering that moment to every student I meet. In every class, all the time, I am holding my students and myself to the extent that I possibly can. And I am speaking into their crowns. Beautiful one, beautiful one, beautiful one. Thank you. Our thanks to WERU General Manager Matt Murphy for recording those main storytellers at the Common Ground Fair over the last weekend. The organizer and first storyteller that you heard was Anu Dudley. She's a WERU volunteer host of Earthwise, a short feature that airs on Saturday mornings at 730 here on WERU. And that's Main Currents for today. Join us here every Tuesday at 4 o'clock for independent local news, views, and culture, and whenever we can get it, Main Stories. You can reach us at news at weru.org, and you can find our program's archive there. If you're interested in Main Storytellers, we also have a section of our archives where any of our shows that have featured Main Storytellers, which includes Coastal Conversations last week, is archived under a tab called Main Stories at weru.org. Democracy Now! is coming up next, then jazz straight ahead and a southern wind to help you unwind after the day's news. So keep it tuned here to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners 